This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Isaiah 55, and just two verses, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Every kingdom in this world has its own laws and principles uh, with which to govern itself. These are all distinctive and peculiar each different country and kingdom. And they are particularly suited to that kingdom or culture. They may be vastly different. They may be quite alien to our own. In fact, that which we might find strange and completely unacceptable and maybe even completely wrong. But they may be culturally and socially acceptable to that particular people. Therefore, it should come to no surprise to us that the kingdom of God has got its own laws and principles and distinctives. Very different from the kingdom of this world that we live in. (coughs) For example, Romans 8 and 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. So there's two kingdoms There's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. A kingdom of life and a kingdom that brings death. And there are laws in those kingdoms, and one of the principal ones is the law of the spirit of life, which is in the kingdom of light and life. And in the kingdom of darkness, it's the law of sin and death. And in this kingdom of light and life that we belong to, in Romans 9.31, there's a law of righteousness. And James 2 talks about the royal law of love. And so God has principles, he has laws with which to run his kingdom. There are laws that govern faith, laws that govern prayer, govern giving and receiving. There are natural laws, laws of gravity, the law of gravity. There are laws that govern our very weather and our winds. There are very precise laws of physics and biology and laws of electricity. There's atomic laws. So there's all kinds of laws that govern everything, both in this world and in the spiritual world, that God has set in motion in order for there to be order, not chaos. And so we understand that to some degree. There has to be these laws and principles. However, the trouble is that knowing this, that we often then pigeonhole God, we categorize him, and we expect him to act in certain ways at all times. But sometimes God doesn't do what we think he ought to do. Or sometimes God does it differently than he usually does it. And oftentimes that confuses us. We wonder, well, what's God up to? That's not what I expected. That's not the way he did it before. Now he's done it differently. 
And so we're not to think that God just arbitrarily or mischievously just decides. He gets up one day and says, do you know what? I, I think I'll just change the laws. I'll just do it differently, just for a bit of fun. I'll, I'll just confuse them down there. They'll know what's going on. Now, God doesn't operate, operate that way at all. He, he doesn't contradict his own laws and principles just for the fun of it. If God does change something, it's for a very good reason. It's for a higher purpose. And we ought to realize that if God does change something in our lives, it's for a higher purpose. Let me give you an example. Normally, uh, it would take months and months and months uh, for grapes to grow. And there would be certain laws that would be involved in that. There would be chemicals laws, there'd be chemicals in the soils, there would be rain, there would be the sun, there would be all kinds of, of principles that had to be applied. The vine dresser would have to make sure he pruned his vines, he'd have to dress his vines, he'd have to be watching them. And there'd be interaction between the earth, the soil, and, and, the, and, the, and the elements and so forth. At the end of it, after several months, then the grapes would be grown, they would mature, and then the vine dresser would have to take those, and then it would be a process to turn that into wine. That would be the normal way. Those are the laws. Those are the motions that God set in the earth to, in order for grapes to grow. But however, we know that in the wedding of Cana of Galilee that Jesus superseded those laws. <laughs> he absolutely superseded them. And in an instant, water was turned into wine. He bypassed all of those laws that he had set in motion for a higher purpose. It says, this, the beginning of miracles to Jesus and Cana of Galilee, <laughs> that he might show forth his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And so at that particular day, and that particular occasion, at that particular moment, for a particular reason, Jesus superseded all of those natural laws that he himself had put in motion in the earth but it was for a higher purpose. It was time for him to show forth his glory. And what better day to do it? What better time? What better occasion than a wedding that Jesus blessed that wedding with that? You remember how the children of Israel in Exodus 16 and how they had, uh, God had delivered them with a, with a mighty hand uh, from Egypt. And they had started their journeys and they weren't too long into their journeys till they were grumbling and complaining against God. Uh, and they were wanting the food that they had in Egypt, the leeks and the garlic and the flesh pots, they said. And you brought us out here to die in this wilderness. Oh, would that we, we, we had died in Egypt. At least we had bread and we had meat there. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll, I'll, give, them, uh, I'll give them flesh in the evening. I'll give them bread in the morning. In the evening time, he, he sent great uh, flocks of quails to come into the camp uh, every evening so they'd get meat. And in the morning they would go out and there would be this strange little round things on the ground and they says, what is it? Uh, it's manna, that's what manna means. What is it? Uh, they'd never seen anything like this. Uh, this is something that God gave them supernaturally. That whenever the dew lifted off the earth there was these things like, and they tasted like, like, like wafers with honey. Uh, some has called them angel's foot. Uh, nothing ever had been like this before. Uh, and God says, okay, I'll, I'll give you this. Uh, and every day, 
every day for six days. Uh, you, you can go out and collect this. Uh, but, he said, eat what you can that they don't save it up. But some of them did save it up. And it bred worms and it stank. And then he says, you will get none on the Sabbath. But on the day before the Sabbath, gather twice as much. And then you'll be able to keep some for the Sabbath. But then there was those who thought, do you know what? The last time we kept this here, it bred worms and stank. So we're not going to believe God this time. We're going to go out on the Sabbath and gather. But there was none there. And God was angry with them. And he did it as a test. The higher purpose was a test to see if they would obey God and if they would follow his commands. And many of them failed the test. All they had to do was trust God and believe him and do what he asked them to do. Well, they didn't. And so there was a higher purpose for that. There was a reason why God did that, to teach faith and trust. You remember the Roman centurion that came to Jesus and, and said, my servant is sick. Can you heal him? And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And that's what we would expect the Lord to do. His compassionate heart, where there was a need, he would go and he would meet that need. In that particular case, you remember, of course, that the Romans and Cheering said, well, you don't need to come, actually. All you've got to do is just say the word. I'm a man under authority. I know what it's like to give an order. And I know that if you just give the order, Jesus was amazed that he had found faith like this from a Roman soldier. But the fact that Jesus said, I will come, that's what you would expect. But then in John 11, when his best, one of his best friends, Lazarus, was dying, and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, will you come and heal him? And when Jesus got the word, you remember, he abode two days still in the same place. He didn't do anything. Now, they obviously expected him, because he wasn't that far away, that he would come immediately. And heal Lazarus. Why wouldn't they do that? That's what they expect. That's what we would expect it. But Jesus didn't. He abode two days still in the same place. And by the time he got there, Lazarus was dead four days, already in the tomb four days. And the two sisters, both of them says, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And I was, why weren't you here? We sent for you. We expected you to come. This is your friend. We are your friends. You've been in our home many times. You've slept in our beds. You've ate our food. Why didn't you come? But Jesus had a higher purpose, didn't he? Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Oh, we, we know that in the resurrection. We know that. No, he says, no, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Believe me. And so Jesus for a higher purpose, did not act the way he normally would, the way that was totally expected from them. Because the higher purpose was to show forth that he was the resurrection and he was the life. And what a moment that was when Lazarus walked out of that tomb after four days. Now, Jesus had raised people from the dead before this, but never when they were in the tomb for four days. And a bigger purpose, by the way, was to show his messiahship 
because this was an incredible thing. Others had raised dead, but Jesus waited until, even till his body was beginning to decompose. And so this was to show that he truly was the resurrection and the life, that he was the Messiah that was to come. And it says in verse 42 that they might believe that you have sent me. That was his prayer before he raised him from the dead, that they might believe that you have sent me. What more evidence would they ever need than that? Remember how Jesus and his disciples were on a, a boat. They were going across Galilee and a great storm blew up. You remember how Jesus was asleep in the pillow? Uh, and, and it looked to these seasoned fishermen who had been in many storms. It looked for sure as if they were all going to drown. And so in panic and fear, they woke Jesus from his sleep and says, Master, do you not care that we're perishing? And Jesus stood up and he rebuked the wind and the sea was calm. And they said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But you remember what Jesus said to them? Where is your faith? Huh? Where is your faith? Have you got no faith? The obvious implication was you didn't need to waken me. You could rebuke the wind and the waves. That's the implication of what he's saying. But he stopped the wind and the waves. And he told them they literally could have stopped the wind and the waves. But then you remember how that in Acts 27, the apostle Paul, he's a prisoner... He's on a ship going to Rome to appeal. He had appealed on to Caesar. And so to Caesar he would go. But against his advices to the captain and the crew and the soldiers that was guarding not to go on that dangerous trip, it was a difficult time of the year, but they went anyway. Well, he's just, a, he's just an old rabbi. What does he know? He's not a sailor. He's not a soldier. But they should have listened to the old rabbi because this terrible wind, Eurocledon, blew up this great tempest. And it lasted for days. At least 14 days, Paul says, we saw now the sun or the stars. And when all hope was lost, when it looked like there is no possible way we can survive this, but Paul had gone to prayer and fasting. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And the angel of the Lord didn't say, Paul, what are you doing? Why, why, why are you praying? Why did you not get up and stop this? Why did you not use your faith? No, he didn't. He didn't even intimate anything like that. All he told them was, every life will be saved. Everyone on board will make it safely to land but you're going to lose the ship. It's going to break up. And that's exactly what happened. And all of them got to land, some on boards and some on pieces of the ship. <laughs> it must have been difficult, but all of them, without exception, landed on the island of Malta. 
Now, what a difference between the disciples on the boat and Jesus rebuking the wind and waves in a great calm, miraculously saving their lives. What a difference between that and this. Where <clears throat> it's 14 days, and it got to the stage where the whole ship had broken up, and they were scrambling for their very lives to get to the shore. What was the higher purpose? You remember when they got to the shore in Act 27? And how it says that the barbarous people showed us no little kindness. And they gave them some food and they, and they built a fire for them to dry themselves. And, and Paul was gathering some sticks and, and a viper came out, of the, came out of the wood and grabbed onto him and bit him. And those pagan people looked at it and says, yeah, he must have been a murderer. That's why, that's why he's a prisoner. He's a murderer. And, and, and fate has not let him away with it. But Paul just shook it off into the fire, and they watched to see if it would swell up if he had dropped down dead, but nothing happened. And then he says he's a god. <laughs> but it so impressed the people that one of the top officials in the island, his father was lying desperately ill, dying. And Paul went and prayed for him, and God healed him. And for the next three months, everybody that was on the island that was sick they brought them to Paul to pray, and he got them healed, all of them. He had a three-month healing revival. There was a higher purpose. Sure, God could have stopped that storm, but then they would have bypassed Malta, and there wouldn't have been a healing revival. Sometimes it takes more faith to ride out the storm than it does to calm it. Ah, we all want to calm the storm. God says, sometimes you just got to ride it out. I've got another purpose for it. Sometimes it takes more faith, as we said before. It takes more faith to stay in the boat like Paul than to get out of the boat like Peter. Sometimes it takes more faith to be like Caleb, to say, give me this mountain, than to say, mountain, be thou removed. Sometimes God has just got a, a higher purpose, a different plan that we're not aware of. And because he does it differently doesn't mean that it's not right or he's got it wrong. Sometimes, well, all the time, he's absolutely right and his timing is always perfect. But it's to help us to learn to trust him and to believe him. Paul and Silas are in a Philippian prison. They have been beaten. Their backs are bloodied and sore. They're in stocks. But at midnight, they began to sing and to pray and to praise God. And a great earthquake happened. And the doors of the prison flew open. And the jailer was half scared to death because if any prisoner escaped, his life was on the line. And Paul says, do yourself no harm, we're all here. And he led that jailer to Christ and all his family to Christ. And that very night, they bathed their wounds and he baptized all of them that night. What a mighty miracle 
What a moment that must have been when that earthquake struck and all those jail doors just flew open. But you see, right there was the beginning, including the incident with Lydia just before that. Right there was the beginning of the church in Europe of which we all owe our very existence to. But sometime later, Paul's in prison in Rome. He's been arrested. He's awaiting trial and eventually a death sentence. And this time he's in prison for two years. No earthquake. No midnight praise meeting. No quick release. No supernatural intervention. But God had a higher purpose this time. Because out of that time in prison, he wrote four wonderful epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Four prison epistles they're called. The little letter to Philemon is a precious little personal letter. The other was written to churches, but that's a personal one. It's a beautiful one. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians, in all of my Bibles, and, I, and I've a row of them, and if you looked at them, you'd find that Ephesians is the one that I have written the most notes on and underlined, and it's the dirtiest along the edge. You know, your, your gold edge is the dirtiest one. You can just spot it because that's the one. I've, I've lost count of the times I've read that. I love it. It's just so rich with so many great truths. And all of that come out of that prison experience. And the book of Philippians is the most joyful of all of his letters. And Philemon's the most personal of all of his letters. All of that come out of that situation in prison where he wasn't released, where there was no angel appeared, there was no miraculous earthquake, there was nothing. But God had a higher purpose. And we are the recipients of that. We hold that in our hand, those four and many more that he wrote. And after about almost 2,000 years, we still have them, and we still read them, we're still blessed by them. In Acts chapter 13... Verse 6, Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God, but Elimas the sorcerer, for so is his name translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Paul, who's also then Saul, is also called Paul, lifted, sorry, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him 
and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So here's Paul acting in a very precise way, in a very quick way. This guy was interfering. He was doing everything he could to put Sergius Paulus off the message that was being preached, and Paul just had enough of him. He wasn't going to let that continue one second longer, and he rebuked him. And we see the result of that, what happened to him. He was struck blind. And Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, believed. It impacted him so much that he actually believed what Paul and Barnabas was preaching. He says he was an intelligent man. He was no dozer, as we say. And apart from the truth that was being told, this really awakened him. The power of God really opened his eyes so that his ears would be open to the truth. In Acts chapter 16, Verse 16, that happened as we went to prayer. This is the time that, that, that uh, Paul was uh, in Macedonia. Remember, he got the call, uh, come over and help us. He got the vision, the man of Macedonia. When he got there, it was a woman. First met Lydia, letter to the Lord. And then it says, verse 16, that happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us. He brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Hmm. The last time we saw that phrase this morning, many days, was when Paul was on that ship. And we knew those many days were 14 at least so this girl was following them around many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. When her master saw that their hopeless prophet was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace and to the authorities. And so forth and so on. In one case, it was instant. To shut that mouth up was instant. In this case, it was many days. We may wonder, why did he take so long? We don't know exactly why, but he waited until he felt the Spirit prompting him to do something about it. She wasn't going to go away. Maybe they'd hoped that she would go away after a couple of days, but she wasn't going away. And so the Spirit of God prompted Paul, and he felt something rise up in his spirit to deal with that issue, and he dealt with it very strongly indeed. And so sometimes we 
are prompted to deal with something immediately. But sometimes we're not, and it can be many days before we deal with it. Not that Paul was afraid to deal with it, not that he was concerned in any way, but he just didn't feel the release in his spirit to deal with it at that particular time until many days had passed. And sometimes we may find ourselves in situations where we feel we've got to act immediately, and other times it may not be immediately, it may be for a while until we feel the Spirit is prompting us to do something. Now we know why Joseph was allowed to be sold into slavery, because it was for a higher purpose, wasn't it? It was to save a family, his family, because from his family would come a nation, and it would save a nation, and from that nation would come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of that trouble he went through, all of the hassle, the imprisonment, the betrayal of his brothers in the pit, in the prison, then in the palace, all of that, all of that time, it was for a higher purpose. He didn't know that at the time. It was only much later. In fact, it was well over 20 years later when he finally could see it all and he could say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He could have easily said, you meant it for evil, but God had a higher purpose. God had a bigger plan. You did what you wanted to do, but God had overridden all of your plans because he had a higher purpose for me. And that was to save you and to save a family, to save a nation, that the Messiah would come through that line. And so God has higher purposes for our lives. The quick release, the easy way out, is not always God's way. It's the way we would want it, for sure. Who wants trouble? Who wants to suffer? Who wants to be confused? Who wants to be bothered? None of us. So all of us, without exception, want an easy way out of the trouble. But it's not always God's way. Sometimes we have lessons to learn. Trust and faith to be exercised. Patience, endurance. Apostle Paul, three times he prayed to God, please remove this thorn. I'm sick of this. God, remove it. Three times. And God says, no, I'm not removing it. But I'm going to give you so much grace that you'll be able to overcome. And you'll live in the victory in spite of it. Even though you still have it. But you'll be victorious in the midst of it. Because I'm going to give you my grace, which will be more than enough. It'll be sufficient. Thank you. <laughs> so Lazarus was dead four days. Paul ended up in Malta for three months. Joseph was in prison 13 years before Pharaoh ever had that dream. No, it was 13 years. He was in prison a couple of years, but it was 13 years until Pharaoh had that dream, until he was released, until God set that in motion for him. Hannah was barren. And she was greatly bothered by her barrenness. Her husband Elkanah loved her. 
But he had another wife, Penina. And Penina just kept having baby after baby after baby after baby. And poor Hannah was barren. And every year they went up to the house of the Lord to make their sacrifices. And Elkanah would make sure that Penina and all her family had their sacrifices to give. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, the Bible says. Really loved her. But she was so frustrated because every time they went up to the temple, every time Penina would mock her. Uh, you know, and she would, she would mix her cassock remarks and, and, and talk about her barrenness. And it was just awful. It was just an awful time for Hannah to go to the temple. It was a time, it should have been a time of joy and blessing, but it just became a thing that she just hated to do because she knew what was going to happen to her every single time. And she was mournful and sad and, and angry. And, and Elkanah said, listen, he says, am I not better to you than 10 sons? But that wasn't really what she wanted to hear. She knew Elkanah loved her. She just wanted a, a child, and, and particularly a man-child. You remember how then she was praying at the temple, and her, her lips were moving, but there was nothing coming out. And, and old Eli, the old priest, uh, he said, you're drunk. It's the temple of the Lord, and you're sitting there drunk. And he was rebuking her. She says, no, sir, I'm not drunk. I'm in anguish of soul. She says, I'm hurting inside. I'm, I'm crying inside. I'm heartbroken. Why, what's wrong? Well, I, I've got no child in barren. It says twice in, in, in that story, by the way, it says twice that, that God had closed her womb. It wasn't just a natural thing, this. God had shut up her womb. And so... Eli realized then, the, the priest, he realized that he, he rebuked her wrongly. And he says, well, the Lord bless you. The Lord give you the desire of your heart. And so she went back with her husband. And immediately she got pregnant. And we know the story how that little Samuel was born. And the next year, should have been the time to go up to the temple. And she says to her husband, no, I'm not going up. In fact, I'm not going up now till he's weaned. And then I'm going to go up. The next time, I'm going to give him to the Lord. I'm going to lend them to the Lord for the rest of his life. No razor shall come upon him. He's going to be a Nazarite for the rest of his life. I'm dedicating him unto the Lord. She had realized exactly what she was doing. It was a wonderful thing what she was doing. It was a wonderful thing. I mean, she waited so long for this child, and now she wants to give him away to the Lord, to the temple, to work in the temple. But she hadn't realized that God had got a higher purpose for all of that waiting, for all of that stuff she had to go through, for all of that nonsense that she faced every year. God had a higher purpose. And the higher purpose was that this little child, Samuel, would be born and he was born at a very, very crucial time in Israel's history. In fact, in Acts 13, there's just a, a verse there that just reveals this. Uh, Paul is speaking. Acts 13, 
verse 16, Then Paul stood up and monitoring with his hand said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time, about, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Ah. See, here's a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. For 450 years, Israel had operated under a theocracy. That was God governed them directly. But they wanted a king to govern them, like the other nations. And God knew this was coming, of course, because he knows the end from the beginning. And he knew how wicked these kings, by and large, would be. And most of them were wicked kings. And so right at this crucial moment, this transition that was going to be from theocracy to monarchy, right at this pivotal moment that was going to be from the priesthood to the prophets, because the priesthood was completely corrupt, and Eli's sons were one of the, two of the most corrupt priests. We'll have time to read their story. And God was going to remove all of them. Eli and his sons. Who was going to deal with these kings that was going to come up, these wicked kings that was going to have to be the prophets of God? So there needed to be prophets come into the land to deal, to face and confront the wicked kings. And so this little baby Samuel is born right at a very crucial moment in their history when they needed a line of prophets to come. And Samuel and we don't have time to read the story this morning. You know the story how even from a little boy in the temple, God comes to him at night and wakens him up and gives him a prophecy to give to Eli that the ears of all Israel will tingle at. And he became a great prophet of God. And he was the one who started the schools of the prophets, out of which Elijah and Elisha came from and other great prophets. He was the one who started the whole thing. Because it was his time. It was God's time for him to be born. And so Hannah, in all of her barren years, and all of the nonsense she went through, and all the hardship, and the mocking, and the, and the insults, she got all of that that broke her heart. All of it was to culminate and come at this special moment when little Samuel would be born at the right time for the right reason. God's had a higher purpose. And sometimes it may seem like God is late. Why isn't God doing this? Why isn't he moving? Why isn't he changing this? Why, is the, why, 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 why? And all the time we don't realize that God's got a higher purpose if he can just trust him and hold on to him and believe him and know that his plans for our lives are better than our plans he knows the end from the beginning. And so God has got a higher purpose for each and every single one of us today. 
And if we're faithful and we trust him and we believe him, it will come in his time. And his time is always the best time, isn't it? Maybe we're not ready for it. Maybe it's not ready for us. So there's a timing in all this. But when the time is right and God says, now is the time, then nothing can stop it. It'll come. Though it tarry, wait for it. It shall surely come and will not tarry. There's the timing of God. Amen? So God has got a higher purpose for you today. Just trust him. Say, Lord, I don't know what it is today. I don't know when it will happen, but I'll trust you to bring it to pass in my life. And then we'll be blessed. And then others will be blessed because we're blessed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your plans for us are always good and they're not for evil. Lord, we do not always understand your plans. We do not always understand your ways or your timings. But Lord, we're learning to trust you, to believe in you, to hold on to you. Lord, when everything seems to be saying the opposite, yet, Lord, your promises are true and they're real. So we give you thanks today. We bless you for who you are. We thank you that we, many years ago, many of us put our trust in you. And Lord, look what you have blessed us with today. So Lord, there's no reason why we can't trust you for our future, for all our tomorrows. Lord, you have them planned for us. And all we got to do, Lord, like Ruth, we just got to walk and get those handfuls of purpose that you have laid in our path for us to reach out to. So we give you thanks today in the wonderful and precious and mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.